Welcome everyone back to another edition of Takes by the Lake from Cleveland.com. I'm your host, Doug Lane Maurice. Big Browns podcast today. Last couple weeks, we've gone a different route um, with specific interviews about kind of big picture things. We talked to Dave Zirin two weeks ago about his Jim Brown book. We talked to Hugh Hewitt last week about uh, his life as a Cleveland sports fan. And now we are getting back into hardcore sports talk all about the Browns. And this is why we're doing it. We talked to three experts this week, but we're starting off with someone like you. This is coming out of the Hugh Hewitt interview last week, where he was talking about the 2018 Browns season, and he said he has irrational exuberance about the Browns for 2018. That phrase, it's a, it's a phrase borrowed from Alan Greenspan talking about the dot-com bubble uh, years ago. Is there a bubble building around the Browns in that they went 0-16 in case you forgot, but everybody's excited. I can't believe how excited some people are. And we're going to delve into that, and I'm going to try to pop your bubble a little bit on the Browns. Not because you shouldn't feel good, but because there's a little bit too much like wild card talk out there. And and I will say it's not 100% impossible, but I'm not sure that's where your head should be going into this season. I did a quick Twitter poll the other day. I asked people, these were their four choices about their enthusiasm and, and excitement around the Browns. Was their enthusiasm huge, meaning... They think you're the, the Browns are a wild card contender. Was it big? Meaning they have to be better. They will be better. Was it medium? Meaning they can't be worse. And or was it small? Meaning there's still an 0-16 team. Okay? Those were the four choices. What kind of enthusiasm? Huge, big, medium, small. Big one, 47%. Medium, 35%. Huge, 10%. Small, 8%. Okay, so that's 57% of the people were huge or big in their enthusiasm. We're going to delve into this hardcore. We have three great analysts to deal with this. But first, we're starting off with Dog Pound Dave. Because I had decided I wanted to do this as the podcast. And then this week, Dog Pound Dave, that's his Twitter handle. He wouldn't give me his real name. It's at D-A-W-G Pound Dave tweeted this, my predictions for the 2018 season. He went through the Browns schedule and he got 10 and 6. Wins over Pittsburgh, the Jets, Oakland, Chargers, Tampa Bay, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and a three-game winning streak at the end over Denver, Cincinnati, Baltimore. 10 and 6. We want to talk irrational exuberance. So what did I do? I called Dog Pound Dave. And we did this. This is laying out the case for irrational exuberance. I'm going to let Dog Pound Dave blow this bubble even bigger. And then we're going to come back and pop it. We're not pop it necessarily. We don't want it to explode. We're going to let a little air out of it. But first, Dog Pound Dave, if you're feeling irrationally exuberant about the Browns, Get a load of this. I started putting the wins and the losses down, and I kind of knew where I wanted to go with it. I was thinking like seven to nine area, 
Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I got very optimistic, obviously. So I, I went up into that 10 win range to the six losses. And I was like, screw it. I'm going to tweet this out and we'll see what people think about it. And literally within minutes, I was getting retweets and people were just calling me a drug addict and everything. <laughs> and I was getting good laugh out of it. But, you know, people started arguing with me. So I'm like, all right, I made my point. I have to at least back it up now. So I started looking in and like why I think the Browns can go 10 and 6 next year kind of stems from how we were last year. Okay. So I started like looking at the schedule and I was like, six of our games, we lost within seven points. We were pretty close within six of our games. Okay. Out of five of those losses, we outgained the other team in total yardage. And if you look over at Buffalo, they had seven games that were, was within seven points, and they won five of those. So I'm not saying that Tyrod Taylor is the reason they won five and we lost all of our games that were within six points. My point is, if we don't have a rookie quarterback who should probably not be playing and most likely still be in college at Notre Dame, I think you could possibly argue that we could have had our team as a whole last year was like could have been a three win team or a four win team. Yep. And then I started looking back into the history, recent history, obviously. And I found that in 2016, Jacksonville Jaguars went three and 13. And what did they do last year? 10 and six. In 2015, the Cowboys, four wins. What did they do the year later in 2016? They won 13 games. So I really don't think it's that crazy to think a team can go from zero to 16 when in reality that zero-win team probably wasn't a zero-win team. It was more of a two- to four-win team. So that's why I'm like, all right, it's not completely out of the realm to think that this team could win 10 games. Obviously, I know I'm way too optimistic, as I am every year. But it's like those stats alone, that's not why I think this is a very good team. I mean, look what we've done to our actual team. Outside of bringing in Todd Haley, which will give Hugh less stress on the offense and more focus on time management, in-game management, getting the players focused. I mean, obviously, Kenny Britt didn't care last year. Right. So I don't think we're going to have that issue at front this year. I like Todd Haley's offense, um, but then you can just look at the players. You start breaking down the players. We have Josh Gordon, who pretty much didn't play last year. He didn't play till the end when it didn't really matter. You had him, at him, who I would argue is a top five wide receiver in the NFL. I think most people could make that argument. He just hasn't played enough to actually be realistic with that argument. So you have him. Plus Jarvis Landry, who everyone knows what he is. Landry was the number one wide receiver last year. He'll be able to play his true position in the slot this year. And he's not going to be going up against the best CBs because those guys are going to be on Josh Gordon. So you had two very good wide receivers. Plus, I love the Joker. I mean, yep. I don't know how many, like, what people feel about him. But he is a very good tight end. And I saw a picture of him in all-season workouts with a couple of the wide receivers right after we picked up Hyde. I think it was back in like March or February. And Josh Gordon wasn't in this picture, but I thought that he was Josh Gordon. That's how jacked this guy looks. Yep. 
And I mean, just looking at him last year, he's what, 20 years old. He's very young. He's like slowly working himself into the game. I think he's going to be a very good tight end. And plus bringing in Fells as the blocking tight end, it's really going to take some pressure off of the joker. We can run two tight end set if we want to. That's all just wide receiver. Yeah. I'm, you're making the case, man. You're, you're practically persuading me. You are making the case here for the Penguin Browns. I'm persuading myself, and I don't like it. I always get way too excited, you know? <laughs> well, well, listen, so here's – and then like, to, to hit the defensive side of the ball, I assume what you're thinking on defense is good young defensive line, Ogba and Garrett and Jamie Collins at linebacker were all hurt at different times last year. If they're healthy – Exactly. When you add Randall in the secondary, when you add Denzel Ward at number four – couple other guys they added back there. The secondary should be better. Peppers won't be out of position. I assume you see the same things on the defense where you think the defense can take a big step. Absolutely. I mean, you look at our defense last year, based off, I looked up some stats before I called you, and based off NFL.com, total D, we ranked 14th. Our rush D ranked 7th, and our pass D ranked 19th. That's not bad. And our worst like position last year, position group was obviously our DBs. What did we do? We pretty much gave away everyone and we restarted. You're, I know you're a big Ohio State. You follow Ohio State for Cleveland.com. So you followed Peppers when he was in college. And you know that when Peppers is down in the box, yep. he's a lot better. Yep. I think he's going to be a lot more improved down playing at strong safety this year. I mean, I'm really excited. If you look at defensive tackle, we have very good guys down there. I mean, I think um, – Oganobi, I always forget his name. Collie and Brantley. I mean, defense's line as a whole is going to be very good this year. Yep. Plus, right. you had Kendricks. You didn't even talk about him. You're adding a know. starter from a Super Bowl team last year. That's they have four real linebackers at three spots, which is nice. Yeah, exactly. You can move guys in and out. Um, so, so I have two questions for you, Dog Pound Dave, and and the reason I wanted to have you on is. I think you are doing a very good job at making the case for the optimistic Browns fan, right? That obviously when you're 10 and six, you might say, gosh, that guy's nuts. But when you start yeah. breaking it down the way you're breaking it down, uh, it all makes a lot of it makes sense. Right. And you're not, nothing that you have said so far isn't true, right? It's just optimistic, but it's all there. So let me ask my final question here, dog pound, Dave. You're, you're projecting 10 wins, and I know that's optimistic. If the Browns win, let's say, five games, say they're 5-11, and 11, but they show progress, and they're more competitive, and they just are a, a more realistic NFL franchise from a year ago, and they're on the way to something, will you be disappointed with that at all? That's a little bit of what I'm interested in in this podcast is I'm worried a little bit about fans getting so optimistic that a, that a four- or five- or six-win season where they show progress would leave you disappointed. How will you feel about something like that, Dog Pound Dave? Um, I mean, it's hard to be disappointed about winning five games in a season when over the last three years we've only won four games. Yep. But I will be excited just because looking at this roster as a whole, we're very young. We spent some money in this offseason. I mean, coming into this offseason, we had easily the most money out of any NFL team. We spent some of that, but we still have a lot of money. Yep. So that's why I, 
if we only win five games this year, it's obviously going to stink knowing how good our roster is in the lost potential. But if you look at our schedule, we have the fifth hardest schedule in the NFL. It's not an easy schedule. They, in the AFC North is never easy. I'll be, I'll be pretty happy with five wins. The question about five wins will be, do we bring Hugh back for another year or do we fire him? Yeah. Dog Pound Dave, I think you're, you're speaking for a lot of fans. I appreciate you taking the time um, to get the fans' viewpoint out there. At the very least, it is going to be uh, an interesting season for the Browns, and I think there is absolute reason for very legitimate hope around the Browns. So I think all fans should feel good about that. I just don't want anybody to get so far out over their skis with excitement that they, they set themselves up for disappointment. But dog pound, you know, your stuff, man, you, you looked up, you looked up stuff for this conversation. I'm impressed, man. You impressed me. <laughs> Got to do my homework, man. <laughs> All right, dog pound, Dave, thanks for the help. And uh, we appreciate it and enjoy this season. Thanks, man. Take it easy. Go Browns. So that was dog pound, Dave. And let me say, I love dog pound, Dave. I thought that was a great representation of the exuberant Browns fan from a guy who picked him to go 10 and six, but honestly had some pretty good explanations. So we're going to get into three more experts. We're going to talk to Samantha Bunton. She uh, works for Embassy Sports in New York. She's a content producer there. She grew up in Mayfield. She's a lifelong Cleveland sports fan. So she's going to walk the line between fan uh, and media member in analyzing the Browns, but you know, with her head, but doing so with her heart. Then we're going to dig in on how good this young defense could be with Charles McDonald, uh, who he was with Football Outsiders last year. He's starting a new job at SB Nation. He did a great breakdown of the young Browns defense a year ago that caught my eye, and so we dug in on how good that defense could be. Um, and then we're going to get in the end, and I'm going to say this for a little bit. It's a great discussion about Tyrod Taylor, uh, and I think you need to to just chill out a little bit on Tyrod Taylor, and I'll explain that discussion. We're saving that for last. It's really in-depth. You're going to learn a lot about Tyrod Taylor. Here's what I'm telling you right now from me. I think this is the in-between year. I think last year should have been the in-between year for the Browns. They should not have gone 0-16. If they had better coaching and a better quarterback, that could have been the step in-between. It would have been a one-year rebuild, and we would have gone horrible rebuild year, step in-between year, compete for the playoffs this year. I think that was the ideal plan um, for the Browns, and it didn't work out. Instead, it went terrible, even worse. Now they're trying to build back up. We have seen teams, and I'm going to dig into this. This is going to be my third and short column this weekend in The Plain Dealer and on Cleveland.com. We're going to dig in more on this idea, but there have been teams who have made huge jumps, right? But I think I'm going to have something on Friday morning on Cleveland.com comparing the Browns to the Philadelphia 76ers. I think their rebuild in the NBA is very similar to this. They had an in-between year. They had three awful years. They made the playoffs this season, won 52 games. In between, in between the bottom of the bottom and making the playoffs, they had an in-between year where I think they won 28 games. By the same win percentage, the Browns, if they have an in-between year, would win five or six games this year. And I think that there, there's just going to be a step between 0 and 16 and the playoffs. And, and why? Because I think that's what it's going to take. And I think it's going to take, if you're not going to play Baker Mayfield right away, he's got to grow into it. 
um, a lot of other things. They're, they've they've gotten a lot better, but I think they're they're going to be in that middle step year. So that's where I am. Uh, but I want to share. I talked a couple weeks ago about wanting to share more from you guys. Um, I asked for some other opinions on the Browns on Twitter. Here's what some of you guys were saying on Twitter to me. Matt Peak at Matt underscore Peak 2. The enthusiasm has to be high. I don't care about the past. The team itself wants to be better. The connections seem to be stronger than ever. We have the pieces. If it falls, if it fails again, it's on Hugh, period. So that's a lot of optimism with the caveat about the coach. Jeff Fleck at Good to Be Browns fan. That's a nice Twitter handle. Cautiously optimistic because enthusiasm has been worn a bit. I even gave up my season tickets in Section 511. Need a close to 500 year to recharge the batteries. Oh, he calls them fatteries, meaning fan batteries. Ha! Go Browns. I like fan batteries as fatteries. I think that's what you're going to get, Jeff. I think this is the recharge year, not the playoff year. Kevin Boyd at Kevbot937. Cautiously optimistic. Perhaps the best roster since 99. But what happens if Hugh continues to seem incompetent? Dewar's underscore water. All excitement is tempered as long as 1 and 31 is still here. So that sounds like someone who thinks we need a cleansing in between year. At Contract Sports, not that optimistic. I was optimistic at the John Dorsey hiring. Once I saw that the Browns are once again refusing to use their salary cap room to improve their team, I have lowered my expectations. They would rather save that money and line their owner's pocket. Shame. They still have a lot of cap space, but they've also used a lot of it. So I, I don't 100% agree with that. Pete Ang- Angove at OZWI80. Very optimistic. They'll not be a laughing stock. Picking in the middle third of next year's draft and hopefully some division wins too. So that's, again, that's a step up year. Optimism about a step up year. Tyler James at TT James, T James 921. T James 921, Tyler James. We've seen this before. No reason to get excited at all by anything the Browns do in the offseason. They must prove it on the field to make me a believer. Hard to argue. I think that's, a, that's hard to argue. I think you should have some optimism, but I get that. At the real Jay Curry 43, I'm very excited about the Browns. For the first time in a long time, it's not just the, oh, it's a new season and everyone starts at the same record kind of excitement. This team has players that other teams will fear and a QB that has proven it on the field. So listen, that's that's where we are. I I think there is optimism. It's it's how much is there. And and all I want to do here is investigate the idea of maybe having too much. Maybe having too much. Tobias K at K U D R E T O B tweeted, "Level of excitement lukewarm. Coaches and team PR are doing so much to hype the team, but it's hard to take it seriously. I want the team to win, but with Hugh and Greg Williams returning, I'm in a will see mode." So that's where we are. That's where we are. Doug DeLillo, frequent commenter on Buckeye Talk, excitement is remarkably higher than probably any year in the last decade, maybe since the year after they went 10-6 and six and looked, they, looked like they might turn the corner. Optimism is lower because is, is lower around a 4 or a 5 because that's how many games out of 15 I think they'll win. More excited for the future. So you're thinking DeLillo's step up year. All right. That's what we're delving into. I, I just want to have a realistic look at this. I want to have a realistic look. I don't know what I'm going to predict for wins. I actually predicted them, I think, to win five or six last year. Um, I don't know what I'm going to predict. But 
they have a lot of much better players than they used to. That's good. But other teams have good players too. And, and I just don't want anyone caught in their Browns bubble. We're not bursting the bubble. We're letting out a little air. So we're going to go to Samantha Button from New York, Mayfield native. Broke it down really well. I think I think has a very interesting perspective somewhere between fan and analyst that I think will uh, will did serve this discussion well. We we jumped in a little quick with Samantha, um, and to be to be fair, there's been a little audio issues here and there. I'm trying to clean it up. Samantha, there's like an ambulance in the background or something in New York City as she was talking. So I had to cut out like the first 90 seconds. But what she said there was that she's cautiously optimistic. Okay cautiously optimistic and then what we jump into in this interview is does she think there are some fans who are too optimistic all right so this is samantha bunton follow her on twitter at s-a-m-a-n-t-h-a-b-u-n-t-e-n from nbc sports talking browns on takes by the lake oh i i definitely think that they are um most of what i see and what i hear from my fellow browns fans is i think probably too much at this point but I I understand it you know if you're a Cleveland sports fan I think you know hope is the currency of the realm right this is what we trade in because we we don't really have a lot of success outside of the Cavaliers and I guess we've come close with the Indians but for the Browns it's been so long that if you can get even that shred of hope I understand why people sort of start uh, drinking the proverbial Kool-Aid although I'm a little bit hesitant because we've seen this before it's not the first time since the Browns have been bad um, <laughs> that we've had that shred of hope. People got really excited about Johnny Manziel, for example. And uh, <laughs> we look how that turned out. So I, I think we need to be a little bit careful, but I understand where people are coming from. You know, you, you want to feel like things are changing because 0-16, oh, 1-31 in over two years, I mean, nobody wants to, to bear down and, and face another year of that. <laughs> the thing, and Samantha, I think, I'm not a lifelong Cleveland sports fan. I moved to Ohio in 2005, but it's not ingrained in me like people who have lived this their whole lives. So my question is, could could too much hope be a bad thing? You know what I mean? Like the, the, the thing that I'm sort of curious about perhaps cautioning fans about is, you know, I, I don't want people to be talking about making the playoffs so, so much and there are people talking about them being a wildcard contender, that somehow progress, legitimate progress, would be seen as failure. You know what I mean? Like, do you think it – is it possible for Browns fans to be too optimistic? Or you know what? Should you just let it loose, feel good, and like you said, this hope is currency in Cleveland. Let it go. Let it all hang out. Talk about the playoffs. Who cares? You know, I think it's it, – Better to be, I mean, we, we talk about that whole, the old joke that is a Brown fan, it's better to be a pessimist because either you're going to be right or you're going to be pleasantly surprised. And I think that, I, I understand where people are coming from again, but to me, it's, I do think it's a little bit potentially dangerous to get too excited to say, oh, I think this is going to be a wild card team. Oh, they're going to go eight and eight or nine and seven or what have you. Because then if they, let's say they win five games, but they're actually making progress towards where they need to be in the not too distant future. I worry a little bit that, that then we look at that as failure and we say, this isn't good enough. And we, we get into the, 
you know, vicious cycle that we've been in and can't get out of for so many years where we tear it down and start it over again and again and again. And obviously, if this doesn't work, then of course you have to do that. But I do worry a little bit that something that would be positive progress, even if it didn't necessarily translate into a playoff appearance or even a 500 record, will be looked at as failure when, in fact, the team is actually headed in the right direction. So I I just want people to be a a little bit careful about it, not to set the expectations too high, not because they'll be disappointed, and goodness knows we're, we're good at that, or Cleveland fans, but so that we don't kind of cloud any real progress that we do make that could someday lead to a playoff appearance. Samantha, when you've said you've talked to friends when you have these discussions, you have gotten the impression that people are very excited. What do you think people are pointing to? What do you think specifically in your mind has people the most excited when you talk to your friends or, or when you just sort of analyze it yourself? As, you know, you're, you're in the sports world. As you look at this roster, just describe for me the, the reasons for excitement. Well, I think the the people who are a little bit deeper into it, we'll call them well-informed fans or or other professionals that I talk to about this, it it should be John Dorsey. It's that, you know, we finally got our, quote, football guy, which, you know, we had that in Mike Holmgren and that didn't work out so hot. But so far, um, I I think we have decent reason to believe that that John Dorsey has done a, a good job sort of at the outset of this and getting this team headed in the right direction. But I worry a little bit that a lot of the excitement is connected to, let's say, Baker Mayfield, who, if things go the way that they should go, which they rarely do for the Browns, but, you know, benefit of the doubt, let's say that they do, we have to hope that Baker Mayfield doesn't even see the field this season. And I think that we have a lot of people excited about somebody who, in an ideal world, in terms of the way that you kind of train up to make that transition from college to the NFL, he really shouldn't even see the field this season. Where does the coaching fit in for you? And again, with the job you have, obviously you have a sense of the entire league as well as just Cleveland football. Um, I'm not going to influence your answer at all with my thoughts about the Cleveland Browns coaching staff, but how do Hugh Jackson and Todd Haley and Greg Williams factor factor into your analysis of the Browns and your enthusiasm about the Browns? Oh, um, this is, I, I'm not a Hugh Jackson fan at all. In fact, I, I'm a very, very dedicated uh, member of the Please Fire Hugh Jackson Club. Um, look, I think, you know, I understand that this guy walked into a bad situation, but I, I also think that he has made a bad situation worse. Um, I look at not not so much the personnel decisions, things that he can't control, but when you look at what he's really done on the field in terms of the play calling and in terms of the way he motivates his team, the way that he directs his team, the things that we do hold a coach directly responsible for, I have been extremely displeased with what he has done with his team. So, you know, I feel a little bit better uh, with the, the hire of Todd Haley coming in to call the plays. And Greg Williams, I'm kind of on the fence about it. I, I loved him in New Orleans, but uh, I'm not sure about that one either. But I, the coordinators, I think I have at least somewhat more optimistic feelings towards, and certainly Haley and perhaps Williams. But to me, I mean, I, this is part of the reason why I am so cautious about saying I think the Browns are going to make significant forward progress this season because to me, I think Hugh Jackson is a roadblock to that. I, I think that this guy is essentially standing in the way of, of positive progress for the Browns, and I don't know 
that I think they can make that leap forward until they make a coaching change. And I, I hate saying that because it's condemning into probably at least one more season of futility, but that's unfortunately where I'm at and with you. Yeah. I mean, the thing that's hard for me and, and I um, I'm on the record about my feelings about Hugh Jackson. I don't think he's done a good job here. That's not a unique opinion. Um, I'm, de- I'm decided to give him, I'm trying to enter this season with an open mind because he is the coach and, and that's not going to change between now and the start of the season. And I don't think it's going to change during the season unless they're, Oh, and 10 or something, unless it's absolutely catastrophic. But the thing that's hard for me is that if you're looking at the Browns again, and, and there is this low rumbling among some people of them as like a surprise wild card contender. When you look at the schedule, when you look at the addition, Ben stays healthy, but that is them maxing out, right? That is them getting 110% out of this roster. And I think when you look at last year, you know, 0-16, that wasn't an 0-16 team. He, he did as poorly with that roster. It wasn't a winning roster, clearly. But he got the least out of it that anybody could. And now the idea that he's going to get the most out of it, and we're not just going to see progress with the Browns, but we're going to see 8-8, eight and eight, or we're going to see 9-7. and seven. That's hard for me to wrap my head around because at the moment, I don't see Hugh Jackson as someone who is going to maximize a roster. You sort of agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I, to me, he's the opposite of that. And I think last season, like you said, and the season before as well, is, is good evidence of that. I mean, you have to be really, really unbelievably bad to go 0-16. It's, it's nearly impossible. It's only happened twice. And I think that you know, when you look at other teams around the league where you have issues with the coaching staff or say somebody underperformed against the talent on their roster, the, the one that always comes to mind for me this past season was the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, where I was also there in favor of having the coach fired of Dirk Cotter losing his job because I felt that there was too much talent on that roster for the way that they performed. The Browns are kind of an extreme example of that. And as much as we say, yeah, they were bad. Absolutely. They were bad. And they could have had the greatest coach in the world, or at least somebody who was sort of mediocre and they still would not have been a playoff team last season. They wouldn't have been an eight and eight team, probably not even a six and 10 team, but would they have won three, four games under a different coach? Maybe. I mean, we, we can point back to very specific instances from last season where his coaching derailed a game that maybe could have been winnable, even for the, the squad that they had. So I think anytime your team performs worse against the, the talent level on paper there, and you don't have some sort of outside factor coming in, you know, too many injuries, suspensions, that sort of thing, then you really have to take a hard look at the coach and say, how much of this was you? And I think a lot of it was him. So, so yeah, I, I don't see him all of a sudden being the guy who can get more out of the roster than is really there when for the last two years he's been getting less out of it than what's really there. I'll ask you two more questions, Samantha. One is I'm going to ask you sort of a negative question, then we'll end on a positive question. But beyond the coaching, uh, when you look at the roster, when you look at the starting lineups on both sides of the ball, in that regard, where do you still have questions? Where do you, you know, we look at the young talent on the defensive line. They've spent a lot of money on the offensive line. We know Joe Thomas retired. A lot of people are, are talking about the, the skill positions. Um, where are your concerns? Where do you think the, the Browns maybe are still falling short from a talent standpoint on this roster? Uh, the offensive line is definitely a concern there, although that one I think I would place a little bit of a caveat on to say this is a problem across the league. 
there just is not enough talent at the position group to go around coming out of college by a reason for that that I won't get into here but certainly I think they have a problem there but I'm not sure they're that much worse off than say your average sort of mid-linking NFL team in that capacity but it is a problem and they do need help there going forward Um, I certainly think that the receiver group, which has gotten a lot of fights, Josh Gordon's out there running around telling everybody it's the best receiving core in the NFL, which is hilariously wrong. But even, I think, a sort of a tempered version of that, to me, that there's still some issues there. I'm obviously excited about the acquisition of Landry. But outside of that, and we don't know that Josh Gordon can keep himself on the field. And even beyond that, I think there's some depth issues there. I mean, I'm concerned as well about the secondary, specifically the safeties, is sort of my... I guess I'd call it my pet position group that I am sort of very personally interested in safeties and how they function in a defense and what can happen to a defense if you have exceptionally good safeties. And I don't see that for the Browns. I think they need some help there as well. And then across the board, I, I also think depth is an issue. You have a lot of position groups where you, you have some talent there, certainly. But what happens if somebody gets hurt? If something happens, there's nobody to step in and take their place. So I think there's an an issue of sort of how deep does that roster go in addition to just how do the starters look? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And that we obviously saw that last year. A lot of people have talked about the injuries on the defense. And I've done that too. I mean, I, I very much tried to make that point that they weren't close to what they could have been on defense last year with Miles Garrett and Emmanuel Ogba and Jamie Collins and their most important guys missing parts of the season but we know injuries are part of the NFL and the best teams are able to overcome them because of that depth I feel like they're they're getting better in that area but they're not there yet and I think that's an important thing to remember that again talking about the Browns as a potential 500 team or, or wild card contender you're talking about a completely healthy Browns because I don't think they're in a spot to uh, overcome injuries as well as the best teams. So final question, Samantha, when you watch this team, what will you be looking for to feel good about this season? If, if you believe that you're trying to temper your enthusiasm compared to some of the people you talk to, what will you view as success? What do you want to see so that you know in your heart and in your head, even if they're not a playoff contender this year, that the Browns are headed in the right direction? What is Samantha's version of success in 2018? Well, it would be lovely, I think, to see a couple more flashes in the wind column, of course, but what I'm really looking for is for them to be competitive in every game. I want to see a team that can hang with anybody. If they can't ultimately come out on top of that, especially against the the stronger teams that they're going to face on the schedule, then okay, but I want to see them look like they can hang with anyone. So that means when Pittsburgh comes to town, when Baltimore comes to town, as well as the opponents in other divisions, I want to see them look like they can play with anybody, essentially like they belong in the NFL. And, you know, we have the old sort of trope, any given Sunday. And certainly I think that's possible. Maybe they steal one from somebody, maybe they don't. But what I want most of all to kind of seek out of them is – are they competitive? Do they look like a team that belongs here, that even if they can't get the win, can they compete? Can they make the other team, whoever it is, any week of the season, work for it? And I also, I guess the other thing I want to see is fire, competitive fire. I want to see Mm -hmm. a team out there that believes in itself, that truly thinks that they can get there, even if they aren't there yet. I, I worry a little bit, and this is sort of the, the danger anytime you have a team that's had a lot of failure in the past about people giving up, about 
people resigning themselves to it. And we talked about that a little bit with fans, but you worry about it with, with players too, with the coaching staff. So they can look like, yeah, they may not be able to beat everybody, but they can compete with anyone. I would consider that very good positive progress. Samantha Button, thank you so much for taking time out of your day. Um, great talking with you about the Browns. We'll see how this season goes, and, and hopefully we can check in, you with again, uh, check in with you again sometime later on in the season and have you back on Takes by the Lake. Uh, sounds great. Hopefully I'll be having to uh, eat all my words about the Browns not being a playoff team. But uh, either way, I'd love to do that. Thanks so much, Doug. All right. Love that very realistic Browns conversation with Samantha Bunton. I want to remind you guys, you should be listening to all of our Cleveland.com podcasts, Wine and Gold podcast about the Cavs. Joe Varden, Chris Fedor is on fire lately. Must, must listen. All these podcasts, you can subscribe to them separately wherever you get your podcasts, okay? If you're listening to this, you can find Wine and Gold Talk. You can also find all of our podcasts at cleveland.com slash podcasts. That is where we host Every single podcast we do, there's a political podcast in there. There's some, uh, I think, some pop culture stuff in there. But we have five great sports podcasts. So we've got Wine and Gold Talk on the Cavs, Orange and Brown Talk on the Browns, Cleveland Baseball Talk on the Indians, Buckeye Talk on Ohio State Football, sometimes basketball, and then Takes by the Lake. So that's five podcasts that, that will get you through your week. Make sure you're finding them all wherever you get podcasts, and if you need to, cleveland.com slash podcasts. Thank you, Samantha Bunton. Now we're going to Charles McDonald. This guy's great. Just like everybody on this show, he was great. Find him on Twitter at 4Verts, F-O-U-R-V-E-R-T-S. He used to work at Football Outsiders. He's starting a new job at SB Nation as a senior NFL news desk writer. He hosts a podcast called Setting the Edge. That's a football podcast. He's one of these film analyst guys who digs in on stuff and is really good. We focused on the defense. We focused on the young defensive line. We focused on the secondary. We focused on how Greg Williams has used his defenders here in Cleveland and how he might use them this year. Charles McDonald dropping some great stuff again. The bubble, the bubble. Are we squeezing a little bit out of the bubble? I'll tell you what, he likes this defense. Charles McDonald joining us on Takes by the Lake right now. Joined by Charles McDonald. Thanks for taking time out of your day, Charles. Um, I, I read a great breakdown you did at the end of last season uh, on the Browns defense, and, and so I thought you'd be a great guy to talk about this. Big picture right now overall, how should Browns fans be feeling specifically about this pretty young defense, both with personnel and the way we should expect Greg Williams to be using these guys this year? Well, I think that you should feel pretty good about, at least about the investments they've made along the defensive line. When you talk about, you know, Miles Garrett, uh, Emmanuel Agba, Larry Ogunjobi, Caleb Bramley, those are all guys who have had, you know, a, a good bit of production and shown flashes of, uh, like elite play in the cases of Garrett and Agba, where, you know, got, Agba, before he got hurt, he was just a machine for tops for losses. Garrett, you know, you saw the upside and the rare athleticism that made him the number one pick. So when you kind of see those pieces start to come together, it's kind of cool uh, just to see all those guys kind of hit their stride at the same time. And, you know, it is a really young group. I think the like one of the oldest guys on that group last year was Danny Sheldon. 
who was in his third year and he just got traded. So, you know, you have a, a bunch of young guys that got to kind of, I guess, step their game up together as a unit, but early returns on those draft picks have been pretty solid. And as, on defense as a whole, you know, it's, it's a young unit, but last year, I, I don't, I don't know if they were as bad as some of the numbers say, but they were just kind of put in advantage, like this or, you know, poor spots by the offense because the offense turned the ball over so much. And, that kind of gives you, you know, you're going to be in a harder position to stop the opposing offense. But I, I like the talent that they have just from a personnel perspective, especially up front. And now you kind of start to see the secondary come together, at least on paper a little bit with the addition of Denzel Ward. A great point you made um, in the piece you wrote at the end of last season. And I, and I want to hit this specifically before we branch out into other things is you, a team has to take advantage of having young defensive linemen like this especially when they've used high picks on these guys before they get to their next contract before they get really expensive so I think on one hand people might look at the Browns defensive line and say and say wow they're young they're just getting started they have time but yet on the other hand Charles they need to take advantage of this now right they need to maximize this now and be really good there and let that defensive line lead them to overall success as a team because in a couple of years they're going to have to pay for these guys and and right now is when they get hopefully production and value right right and it, it, you kind of got to look at it, it you know i, I kind of look at it in the way that the warriors kind of built their team where you know you draft these guys and steph curry clay thompson and draymond green and you know if everything goes right and the path pans out perfectly for them you don't really mind paying them but you would still like to get some production with them while they're on their lesser deals and then you know I guess like in the NBA the cap kind of blew up and you get, that's how you added Kevin Durant but with the NFL you kind of look at look at it with with quarterbacks too because pass rushers and quarterbacks kind of get similar money because their impact on the game is so strong so if everything goes right for Miles Garrett you're going to end up paying him you know probably somewhere along the lines of, I mean, I don't know what's going to be when we get there, but something that's going to be probably like 110 plus million dollars as a total contract. And that's fine if he's uh, an elite pass rusher, but you still like to kind of maximize what you have around him before you get to that point where you have to pay him and kind of maximize talent and maximize everything that you can on that team before you kind of get that albatross contract that you're going to have to pay and really be happy to show out because he, you can't let elite players walk. But kind of having these guys hit their stride while they're all on those rookie deals uh, is just, it's almost like a, a little loophole in, in, uh, in, in roster structure where you're getting way above average production for guys that aren't making that much money. And that's, that's where you find, that's where you, that's how you win. Like that's how the Patriots find their bargain bin deals where they get guys that are productive on less money. That's what the Eagles did last year in terms of like manufacturing their run game and their pass defense. It's just kind of finding the holes where you can in terms of cap and salary. And right now the Browns, they have that on their defensive line, just kind of see can the rest of the, the defense kind of catch up to that. Another great point I thought you made in, in your writing about this last year is the way that Greg Williams used that defensive line. Can you explain how you thought uh, what you thought of the job Greg Williams did in terms of setting these guys up with the types of things he asked them to do 
to maximize their talent and how that factors into the potential production of the D-line this year, not just with having these guys, but with the way Greg Williams likes to use them. Yeah, you know, I think that, that Greg, you know, he, there's, there are things that you can uh, get on him for, but his, 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 I guess, idea of how he wants his defensive line to come across, that's never been an issue for him at any stop. Uh, I mean, you you'd even go back to his time with the Rams, and he kind of got even got production out of Dom Easley, who had been hurt, uh, and kind of helped Michael Brockers take his game to another level. So, you know, he's he's been a guy that can get production out of the front. And what I really like about what Greg does is they have, you know, Greg's really known for his blitz, his blitzes, and he's a really heavy blitzer. But I like how they get, you know, Ogba and Garrett, and they'll twist those guys aside, and maybe they'll have Ogba playing three-tech inside every once in a while, and Garrett outside, or, or they'll flip-flop. And, you know, when you have guys that are both about, you know, 6'4", 6'5", 270, and they can both run – in the four six or even under four six range, if in the in Garrett's case, that gives you so much flexibility up front, and then you have those two elite athletes, and then you can pair them with uh, guys like Larry Ogunjobi or Caleb Brantley, and just gives you so much room when you have those big guys. That okay, like I can look at Miles Garrett, I can put him over a guard and say, worst case, if they run, I know that my guy is strong enough to hold up against you know a three hundred pound guard. Or if they pass, you know, this is the advantageous situation because my guy is a better athlete than their guard. So you're never really at a disadvantage when you have guys that are that big and can run like that. And then it just makes things so much easier for everything else. Like I, I think that Garrett and Ogba, they opened up a lot of stuff for Derek Kindred to get working in the run defense last year. And that's a big reason why uh, their run defense was so good, why they were able to get tackles for losses so well. is just they, they mix and match their guys stylistically together up front in ways that they can play off each other and make plays in the backfield. I want to get to the secondary with you, but quickly on the linebackers. When you add Kendricks to Schobert, Collins, and Kirksey, those four guys in those three spots, does that seem like a linebacker group to you that can be a linebacker group for a, a good, solid, maybe even better than solid NFL defense? Or are there still some issues there? Oh, I mean that that linebacking core is is more than good enough to to get the job done. And I think what what Kendricks does, the addition of Kendricks is that I think that just gives you more flexibility with Jamie Collins because now you know you don't have to deploy Jamie Collins as just an off ball linebacker or just a pass rusher. You know you can kind of play that matchup as you see fit going throughout the season. And now you have the added bonus of Michael Kendricks, who did play pretty well last season. You just know that you're getting someone who has the capability to play in coverage and versus the run and lets Jamie Collins be that freelancer that kind of makes him so great uh, off the edge and in the middle of the field. And now, now you already have a pro bowler in, in Shover and Kendrick is coming back and Kirksey's a good player. So those four linebackers can probably stack up with almost any linebacker core in the league outside of maybe like Carolina because that's just crazy or maybe Seattle. But, you know, those four guys give you a lot of range, a lot of flexibility, a lot, a lot, and a lot of speed on defense. All right. The secondary, in, in the article when you were breaking down the defensive line last year, you were talking about the way Greg Williams used the defensive line, and then you had an aside about how he uses the secondary, and you didn't see that the same way you saw the defensive line. We know it was such an issue last year with Jabril Peppers playing as deep as he played. We know that that 
we think was sort of out of necessity and that's not the plan going forward. How much better do you think the secondary can be with all the guys they added with drafting Denzel Ward, with adding Randall and, and all these other guys? Um, could that secondary make a big jump or do you still see a lot of questions there potentially? Well, it, it has, it, it definitely has the potential to make a big jump just because, you know, you go back to, Demarius Randall's time at Arizona State, and he he played free safety, and a lot of people have him as a first round prospect as just simply a free safety. So, you know, based off the talent, that wouldn't be surprising if that hit and worked out, and he's a stud in Cleveland. That would not be a very surprising uh, development, I would say, just because there were so many fans of him as a free safety coming out of Arizona State. And you know, with Denzel Ward, to me, you you kind of looked at it or the way I looked at it was when you get to pick four after you pick Baker at one, you have, you can take Bradley Chubb or Denzel Ward really. And I kind of viewed them as similar prospects. And with the way that I feel about Agba, you kind of got to take the corner there just because to me, you, you, you need that more than defensive end. So if Ward hits and I think he can be like an upper echelon corner, like there is a lot of upside with this pass defense unit. It's kind of just, you know, Denzel Ward, if you look at the schedule, he's kind of got a, a gauntlet this year with the receivers that he's going to face with, you know, A.B. and, and uh, A.J. Green twice, of course. He's got Julio. Then uh, they play uh, the the Chiefs with Sammy Watkins and Tyreek Hill. You know, it's just there's a lot going on there. Uh, and you play the Bucs, too, as well. So, uh, and, you know, but the most, the most frustrating part is when you see Jabril Peppers last year lined up, like, 25 yards off the ball and he's bailing back to 35 or 40 yards off. Even if you have someone like Ed Reed there, it, it's just physically a lot of ground to cover. And when you have someone like Jabril Peppers who went from corner to safety to linebacker in college, you're moving a linebacker back up to, you know, 25, 30, 35 yards off the field. That's going to cause a lot of problems. So when you're really blitz heavy like that up front, which is fine, a lot of teams did that. You know, Rex Ryan kind of made his entire career off that. That's fine, but you kind of you, you got to make it a little bit easier on your on your secondary guys to come and make plays on the ball. And that's that's kind of where Cleveland struggled last year. But they certainly upgraded the talent to do it. Uh, Denzel Ward and Randall could be home run acquisitions. It's just kind of you got to see it as it goes along, I guess. So here we are, Charles. We're talking about that the secondary could be much better. We're talking about that that linebacker group um, ranks up there with most teams. We're talking about the defensive line has a lot of young talent, disruptive talent there. The, the overall theme of this podcast is trying to figure out if perhaps Browns fans are getting a little too excited about this season because there is some underlying current for some people about – could this team go from 0-16 to like a surprise wild card contender? But when we run through the defense like this, right, there's, there's, there's a lot of hopeful things we're talking about. Do you think it is possible that in 2018, this defense under Greg Williams could be, and I'll use this phrase, a playoff quality defense, at least on this side of the ball? Is that possible or is that a stretch? Oh, it's, it's possible. Uh, for sure, it's possible. I mean, just because, you know, I, I don't think the Browns were, you know, 
they weren't they weren't as bad as like the 08 Lions, where it's just oh my god, these guys don't have a chance at all in any game. You know, it's kind of like they they were good up until halftime, and then after halftime, things just all kind of fell apart for them every week. So, you know, they were competitive. They were about as competitive for an 0 and 16 team as you can get. Uh, but you know, it's just kind of hard to to say they're going to make that leap all the way from 0 and 16 to the playoffs. But so much has changed, you know, from the quarterback position to guys they have in the secondary now. It it's possible. I, I think their defense is is definitely trending on the right way to be a playoff caliber defense this year. I just I just kind of struggle with the idea that you know Greg Williams is going to stop being Greg Williams and. You know, you, you kind of if if Greg Williams is going to keep making life difficult on a secondary, you really need Ogba and Garrett to kind of almost be ahead of schedule with how they rush the passes here. It, I know there there's some great stats out out there about how often Greg Williams blitzed last year with the Browns, and that they blitzed I think more than anybody, but yet it was less effective than almost anybody. Do you think he was blitzing so much last year out of necessity because? Garrett was hurt early and then Ogba was hurt late and he felt like that was their best chance to get pressure. And maybe he'll do less of that this year. If he relies on that defensive line to do its job, or do you think there is something in the DNA of Greg Williams that he is still going to be dialing up a bunch of blitzes that I think fans might get excited about, but maybe in the end, like you said, it puts a lot of pressure on the secondary um, and maybe wouldn't be the right way to use this defense. How do you expect Greg Williams to deploy these guys? I, yeah, I, I think, like you said, it just kind of depends on the development of Agba and Garrett. Yeah, if those guys take the next step, I, I mean, I don't think it's ever going to be not in Greg Williams' like football DNA to, to not be a guy that rolls the dice and goes for a blitz. But if, if Agba and Garrett really – take the next step. You almost don't have to because, I mean, just look at Jacksonville, for example, this year. They were one of the bottom three teams in the league in terms of blitz percentage, but they had, uh, they finished the league second in sack percentage behind Pittsburgh, and that's just a credit to how good their front four was in terms of getting consistent pressure on the quarterback throughout the season. So uh, hopefully you get into a situation where you don't have to blitz because I feel like, you know, the fan, the fan loves the idea of the blitz until it leaves something wide open. And that's kind of the danger of it. And, you know, that's what the Browns were last year. And a lot of times third and long, and that's why they struggled tremendously for a screen game last year, just because when you blitz that much, you do kind of get uh, your, your tendencies are pretty easy to figure out. So you remember that long screenplay they had uh, by Giov- Giovanni Bernard against the Bengals, where it almost looked like that, that engaged eight play on Madden, where there's just nobody in the secondary and everyone's blitzing up the field. So hopefully, you know, you get to a point where the defensive line can get more pressure as just a front four unit that you don't have to blitz as much, but old Greg, he's always going to have some dialed up. So Charles, the reason I like having guys like you on is that it's the, the way you're talking. It's obviously clear that, you know, the Browns, you understand the Browns, you can analyze the Browns, but you also analyze the whole league. You have national perspective on this, that sometimes people like me in Cleveland we have a Browns perspective, but not the national perspective. When you look at where the Browns are with their roster, with the way they've been trying to build things the last couple years, what would be your explanation to fans about how the Browns roster at the moment fits into the rest of the league 
and what you see as the potential for this rebuilding project. Do you feel like this is something that, you know, even if maybe we're trying to tell people don't buy your Browns playoff tickets in 2018, do you feel like this is a football franchise that is coming? Do you see something here or do you still see some, some holes here that lead you to question if this is going to lead to where the Browns want to get? Oh, I mean, I, I think they're coming. Like just because when you look at, at the roster and just forget the Owen 16 team last year, because you've had turnover since then. So I think if you just kind of look at what, they have right now and look at guys who are young i mean we didn't even talk about the offensive side of the ball where you could moving forward you could have a group that features you know an interior trio of kevin zeitler jc treader and joel batonio and then they're blocking for baker mayfield nick chubb and he's throwing the landry and josh gordon if he can stay on the field and hopefully Corey coleman can show something like they're they're definitely coming as a team it's just kind of hard for me to say you know, you went 0-16 last year, and a lot of that was mainly just due to, I mean, all-time bad quarterback play from Deshaun Kaiser and uh, Kevin Hogan when he was in the game. But you still went 0-16, and just kind of make that leap from 0-16 to a playoff team. It, like, it, 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 it's definitely possible with the roster that they have, and the AFC is kind of weak, but they, they have a pretty brutal schedule this year. Uh, so I don't know if 2018 is the year, but uh, 2019, like we should all be expecting this team to be in the playoffs by 2019. So we're trying to take the air out of expectations for 2018, and we just ended that interview with the prediction that the Browns are going to make the playoffs in 2019. So I'm I'm letting you guys blow up the balloons for 2019. I'm fine with that. I just don't want you to be a year early. All right, last guest. This is like a full podcast already. We're like practically at an hour. We don't normally go this long on takes by the lake, but I wanted to dig in. I want to dig in. I wanted to dig. Michael Salfino is the last guest. I saved him for last because this got a little long, but it's all interesting. I promise. It's really interesting because I think it's not something you guys have heard or read a lot about. Michael can be followed on Twitter at Michael S-A-L-F-I-N-O. He had a Twitter thread last week on Tyrod Taylor that piqued my interest, and we dug all in about that Twitter thread, about his analysis of Tyrod Taylor, and and this is what I think people should remember. The Bills made the playoffs last year for the first time in 18 seasons with Tyrod Taylor as their quarterback, and then they immediately got rid of him and drafted a quarterback in the top 10 and traded up to do it, gave up a lot of assets to get up and draft Josh Allen. You can disagree with that, You can think that the Browns got a steal by acquiring Tyrod Taylor, by acquiring a playoff quarterback. But let's remember, the Browns got Tyrod Taylor for a third-round pick, not a first-round pick. They got him for a third-round pick and a historically bad franchise in Buffalo. Dumped him because they didn't think he was a quarterback to win with in the long term. Okay, so maybe that's a terrible Buffalo mistake that they will regret forever because Tyrod Taylor is going to be a legend in Cleveland. But I think more likely is that he's a good, solid guy that is not a get-you-over-the-top quarterback. And honestly, if this Browns rebuild tops out at 9-7 and seven and a loss in the wild card round, that's a failure. You don't go 
one in fifteen and zero in sixteen to lose in the wild card round. You 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 tear down to this degree because you want to build up all the way. You want a Super Bowl in Cleveland. Is Tyrod Taylor a Super Bowl quarterback? So listen, there, there's a lot of separate questions here, but in the end, I think the the thing that I'm trying to get to is this: A, I don't want you to be too excited about this year, and B. I don't if they if they do reach the threshold, if they do max out, if they do live dog pound Dave's dream and they go 10 and 6. I don't know that that means that Tyrod Taylor is your quarterback of the future because the question is not whether any quarterback here can get the Browns to 10 and 6. The question is whether he can get him to 12 and 4 and 13 and 3 and whether he can be their Ben Roethlisberger. And you don't want in the end to pin your hopes on a 10-6 and six guy. Maybe, maybe, I guess there's a chance Tyrod Taylor's more than that. But uh, Baker Mayfield, you drafted Baker Mayfield number one and passed on Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen and Josh Allen because you were fairly sure he could be that. So please don't expect too much from Tyrod Taylor in 2018 and do not fall in love with Tyrod Taylor long-term if he does happen to max out this team. I just think there's a lot of things at play here, and there are levels to this. Michael Salfino is helping us dig into the levels. Big, meaty interview in this giant Browns digging in podcast. Digging in and letting out the air on Takes by the Lake. Joined by Michael Salfino, writes for the Wall Street Journal, 538, some really interesting, um, really good football analysis and I'll tell you guys the tweet last week that got me interested in Michael and I thought was so interesting it reads like this I can't remember a player in my lifetime so obviously flawed as Tyrod Taylor that nonetheless mesmerized the numbers guys here's the Tyrod stat to learn sack percentage and then Michael went into a really long interesting thread Michael, what what sort of led you to want to tweet this out? There's been a lot of discussion about Tyrod Taylor. I think your contribution on this is very interesting, but what led you to it? Well, I you know, first of all, he's kind of like a fantasy darling. So um, a lot of the guys who are doing the analytics generally and the fantasy analytics, they really like Tyrod Taylor. And Taylor obviously has, you know, hidden value in fantasy that may not be uh, – as easily uh, translated into reality, given his ability to run with the football. Um, but even the people who just look at things like, um, you, you know, the other sort of advanced metrics, they, they, they really um, lean toward Taylor being a good to great quarterback. And there seems to be a divergence there in opinion when you, when you look at how Taylor seems to be perceived by the uh, NFL community, given the fact that, you know, his, his, the price for his services was so low given the dearth of, you know, quality, uh, good to very good uh, or good to great quarterbacks in the NFL. So I would, I would assume that if the NFL personnel people shared that opinion, that the cost for procuring Taylor's services, even at his contract level, would have been much greater than what the Browns paid. So that's the thing with Tyrod Taylor, and this is why I'm so interested to have you on as, as what I consider to be a service to, to Browns fans to some degree, that, that I wrote something last week on the idea that 
just a, a, a competent level of quarterback play could make the Browns so much better because their quarterbacks have been so bad here. But what makes me a little nervous for Browns fans is when people maybe are getting the idea that like, wow, Tyrod Taylor is the guy. He's, you know, I'm not even worried about Baker Mayfield. Tyrod Taylor can turn this franchise around. And, and I'm interested in pulling the reins back a little bit on this because I think he's competent. But when we get beyond that, maybe is when you run into a little bit of trouble, right? Yes. I mean, the key stat for me is something more simple. It's a stat that's been around for, uh, you know, 50 years. Uh, Bud Goody, who's kind of the Bill James of football, pioneered the use of this stat. And uh, it's yards per pass play. So what that does is it includes sack yards. It subtracts them from passing yards. And it includes sacks as pass plays. And the team that wins that stat, going back to the 1970 merger, I wrote about this for the Wall Street Journal, by any margin, and it's not like turnovers, which where a lot of games don't even have a winner in turnovers. And if they do, the, the differences are extreme. Like, you know, two turnovers to none, that's an extreme difference. But there's always a winner in yards per pass play in an NFL game. By, and by any margin, the winner of that stat wins 74% of the games. So that's the stat that really dislikes Tyrod Taylor um, because he takes a lot of sacks. He's one of the few quarterbacks in NFL history who's had three seasons with an index sack rating of 80 or worse, where 100 is average and lower is worse. Um, and it's actually below 80. So uh, there's just a handful of quarterbacks in NFL history who've had three years like that. And Taylor has done it every single year. Your, your analysis in this Twitter thread was so interesting. I know there was some pushback from some people about the idea of how much sack percentage really matters. And obviously we know an interception ends a drive. But, but your analysis on this, I mean, this is not, you know, it's, it's kind of obvious, but yet it's worth digging in on the numbers. Sacks, yes. sacks kill drives. Sacks kill drives. Yes, they do. Right? <laughs> yeah, 84%. Of, of drives with a sack and before the the series of downs is changed to a first down or a touchdown. Um, and on first down, and obviously that includes a lot of sacks on third down, which necessarily end the drive. But on first down, um, a, a new series of downs results in an either another first down or a touchdown 70% of time, uh, 70% of the time. But when you get sacked on first down, that number goes down to 30%. When you get sacked on second down, that number goes down to 19%. So we're not really, like, assuming that most sacks occur on third down. No, sacks are bad no matter what the down. And so when I put the numbers into a model, I came up with um, – and, and when I looked at actual, um, uh, you know, points per drive, basically, uh, when there's a sack versus when there isn't a sack, I came to the conclusion that a sack is – about half as bad as an interception. So the big selling point with Tyrod is that he doesn't throw picks, but if he's getting sacked at such a high rate, an historically high rate, and, and if you give the sacks half as much weight as the interception and you combine that percentage, then Taylor craters to being you know a bottom five or six quarterback because that's how bad his sack rate is. So I think the obvious question that people would ask when they hear something like that is, well, isn't that on the offensive line? 
how much of that is really about a quarterback. If the Browns spent all this money on the offensive line, they have two good guards and a pretty good center. We know they have to replace Joe Thomas at left tackle, but if we have a decent amount of confidence in the Browns offensive line, won't Tyrod Taylor's sacks go down? But, but I think there is yeah. something, there's something to the idea that sacks also are attached to a quarterback, though, right? Not just an offensive line. Yeah, my back-of-the-napkin analysis is that sacks are mostly the, the fault of the quarterback. But obviously, individual mileage may, may vary, and this is just a general stat. So through my work for 538, I have access to the ESPN database. And so what I wanted to figure out, I know that the measurement for a pass play in the NFL is plus or minus 2.5 seconds. If you're 2.5 seconds or less, that's good. If you're 2.5, if you're over 2.5 seconds, that's viewed as, as holding the ball too long. So what I did was I wanted to figure out the percentage of pass plays for Tyrod Taylor in his career where he held the ball for over three seconds. And these would be plays that were either he released the ball or he got sacked. And his rate was 37%, which was by far the highest rate in, uh, as far as the, the, the quarterbacks who, who played regularly. Okay. And it was even more by uh, – even if I counted quarterbacks who threw 10 passers or more, it was the highest rate. And the NFL average is 23%. So that's sort of like how you tether that. If you – you know, he's 37%. The league average is 23%. So I think it's very fair to say that Tyrod Taylor – has a problem holding on to the ball too long. In that stats database, you can search how long it takes the quarterback to let go of the ball? Yes. Yeah, wow. we, have, we have great stats at, at ESPN and 538. Yeah. So, you know, I use those stats frequently. But, yeah, that's, 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 that was a great pull. And it was a great pull in the sense that you really can get, I think, at a better answer for allocating the responsibility – of the quarterback or the offensive line for a sack with that type of analysis. So after, after this podcast, you can secretly send me the password so I can sneak into that data. <laughs> awesome. um, Michael, I, I think one of the interesting things here is that Brown's fans and Hugh Jackson and the coaching staff, I think are scarred by Deshaun Kaiser's interceptions last year. So I think yeah. some of the reaction to Tyrod Taylor the positive reaction is, thank God the Browns have a quarterback who's not going to get picked off all the time, especially in the red zone. So I think a lot, a lot of the praise and hope for Tyrod Taylor comes from this base level of comp- competence and like he's not going to give the ball away. But, but I think in general, it seems to me like what you're saying is, as all of this, numbers are great for stuff like this, but what, what in the end it shows us is that you don't want to be too far on either end. You don't want to be Deshaun Kaiser, who just is putting the ball up for grabs and leading the league in interceptions by a ton. But you also don't want to be a guy who's so fearful of interceptions that you won't let go of the ball, and therefore your yards per pass play is way down, your sacks are way up, and in its own way that can be as problematic as Kaiser throwing a ton of picks. Yes, that's the thing that I get. Uh, one of my good friends, Mark Stopa, um, who is uh, also a, a fantasy writer, um, he he is a huge Bills fan, so he's watched Tyrod Taylor like obsessively. And the conclusion that he's drawn, and, and this has been confirmed by m- many Bills fans, is that you're not going to see a lot of 50-50 balls with Tyrod Taylor. 
you're not going to see a lot of back shoulder throws. So uh, I, I have a theory, and it's hard to really find out what the answer is, but this is definitely a question worth asking. Um, I think that there is an ideal interception rate, and I don't think that that number is 0%. I, agree. I don't know what it is, but I'm pretty sure it's not 0%. Now, if you're Tom Brady and you're Aaron Rodgers and you're making plays where you can measure them by, by TD uh, percentage or even just by you know uh, efficiency on a per-play basis or just big plays in general, then, then I think that you can um, just give credit to the quarterback for avoiding the mistakes while also not sacrificing playmaking. But with Taylor, Taylor has struggled, I think it's fair to say, when it comes to making plays. So maybe uh, I think the question could at least be asked whether or not he is too conservative and too um, uh, risk averse. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that the point of this, and I think it's, it's twofold, and, and I'll ask you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but from your initial tweet, your initial tweet wasn't Tyrod Taylor stinks. It, it felt yes. like to me that you were pushing back a little bit against any idea of like, hey, like this is, this is our guy. Hey, this is – don't just think of him as a bridge quarterback. He could be the answer. And I know he had a – you know, he helped Buffalo be a pretty decent team last year. But, like, I, is the idea to you that you just thought maybe people were going too far with Tyrod Taylor? And that – certainly he is worthy of being a starting NFL quarterback. But let's just not – push it in terms of what his top end is. Is that sort of what you were going for? Yeah, I think that that's, that's very fair. And I really want to, um, I was, I was hoping that I would be able to make that point. I am not saying that Taylor is a bad quarterback and I'm not saying that he can't be a useful quarterback for the Browns and a winning quarterback, even for the Browns. What I'm saying is if you're going to put him, I don't think Taylor belongs in that good to very good bucket that a lot of the statistical and advanced metrics want to put him in. I think that if you properly weight stats for him, now I understand like generally maybe stats are properly weighted for all quarterbacks, but you know, you got, you also have to look at the individual player. And I think in Taylor's case, we're underweighting uh, the, 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 the sort of the sack penalty that, that his teams incur. Uh, and so I would say that a fair, a way to sort of rank Taylor among all quarterbacks, not in a fantasy sense, but just like in a general sense, would be somewhere in that sort of like, you know, 16 to 20 bucket, um, where where I think he's in that class of quarterback who is um, good enough to kind of live with, but it's almost that when you live with a quarterback like that and you don't upgrade the position – you are almost like hurting the, the the program because you should try you should strive to do better. And obviously, the the Browns did strive to do better via the draft. So I think the real interesting question is: Is Taylor going to, um, through his reputation and through the the turnover avoidance, keep Baker Mayfield on the bench longer than you would otherwise think is warranted? And I do think that's the second part of this. I think A is the Browns fan base understanding that they have a competent quarterback. And in Cleveland, that is gold. But let's not think that Tyrod Taylor is a Super Bowl quarterback. It, just specifically on him, I think that's worth fans having that understanding. The second part of it is 
they just picked Baker Mayfield number one. They drafted Baker Mayfield there ahead of Sam Darnold and Josh Rosen and everyone else because they think Baker Mayfield is a Super Bowl quarterback. When you take a quarterback number one, you have to think he's a Super Bowl quarterback. And I have long, I've covered college football for much of my career. I have long espoused the idea of the worst thing you could have is a mediocre quarterback that you think, well, right. Decent. Oh, no, he's not that decent. Well, give him a longer shot. And all of a sudden, you've wasted multiple years on a guy who was never going to be more than average. I almost think Deshaun Kaiser on some level is better because you thought maybe this guy's going to hit. And instead, he missed wildly and you moved on. So the idea, explain to me how you think, knowing what you know about Tyrod Taylor, how do you think the Browns should handle Tyrod Taylor and Baker Mayfield because I think what we're both saying is Tyrod Taylor is not a guy that should be blocking Baker Mayfield for like multiple seasons in Cleveland. Yeah, I think the the interesting thing now is is how with with practices limited and obviously during the season they're limited either even more that the problem isn't necessarily like how many games is he going to miss, say Mayfield, like say he comes in week nine, you know, is it that big of a deal versus starting week one? What I think is a big deal and what I think deserves at least to be explored and and queried is whether or not um, the benefit of having that quarterback, that rookie quarterback start week one is that you are able to then design an offense for his unique skill sets. I mean, is Baker Mayfield, going to step into a Tyrod Taylor offense? Is the Tyrod Taylor offense going to be the Baker Mayfield offense? Wouldn't the Browns want to incorporate some of the Oklahoma concepts where there was a lot of deception in the game? There was a lot of fast pace, shotgun, you know, no huddle, frenetic stuff that was going on to confuse defenses. Wouldn't you want to incorporate a little bit of that stuff? And is that necessarily the stuff that Tyrod Taylor is going to do? Um, so I, I get this. My, my my feeling is that you have to try to resolve that quickly and give that rookie quarterback, if you're going to play him in year one, as as good a hand as you can give him by giving him a chance to express his talents in a in a in a manner that um, caused you to draft him so highly to begin with. So I will say this, Michael. I mean, I think Hugh Jackson has, has made it abundantly clear that Tyrod Taylor is going to be the week one starter. Um, and I think it, 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 they're, they're at the moment saying he's the starting quarterback, and a lot of people in Cleveland are talking about the idea of could Baker Mayfield almost redshirt this year? Could he sit the whole year? And really the only yeah. example of that in, in modern times with the overall number one quarterback is Carson Palmer sat for a whole year in Cincinnati. I think John Kitna went eight and eight. But let me tell you, Michael, this is what scares me a little bit about that. Hugh Jackson is so desperate for wins. He's one and 31. Here's my nightmare scenario for the Browns. Tyrod Taylor starts the whole year or basically the whole year. Say he yep. looks very competent. Say the Browns are competitive. Say they go yeah. seven and nine, and then they keep Hugh Jackson, and Hugh Jackson says for next year, in 2019, hey, Tyrod Taylor, we want from 0-16 to 7-9. and Why would I bench that guy? We're riding with Tyrod Taylor. He's our quarterback now. And all of a sudden, you're so in love with competence and mediocrity that you are blocking the guy that you think is supposed to get you to the next level. 
that's what would scare me, Michael. Would that scare you? Yeah, and definitely. And like even worse or better, depending on, see, that's the problem. When you're, when you're in a situation like this, the, the better Taylor plays, the bigger the setback there is for the program because you don't get any kind of resolution and clarity with what you have with Mayfield, right? right. So what, what if they go nine and seven? Right. I mean, a lot of people like the Browns team on both sides of the ball. And if they get competent, relatively mistake-free quarterback play, even with the sacks ending, you know, a disproportionate number of drives, it's not impossible that they could, that they could have a winning season, but certainly they wouldn't be a championship contender. And so then what is the situation going into year two? So now you got uh, your, your number one overall pick on the back burners and Expanding on your point with Carson Palmer, that is definitely true for the for the first overall pick. But the the um, the, the the bigger point I think is when you just look at top five quarterbacks, the last thirteen quarterbacks to be drafted top five overall, ten of them started their fir- the team's first game week one. So we're, we're yeah, not even week talking one about playing first year. We're talking about playing week one that they threw these guys in there. Yes, exactly. And look at what, you know, Sam Darnold did, right? Now, a lot of the reason, uh, I wrote an article for 538 about, about age and, and um, NFL draft prospects. And the younger you are, the better, right? There's just no doubt about it, like as far as your projected outcomes. Now, obviously, you have to look at the individual player. But the big advantage for having Mayfield was that he's a guy that could play more quickly. Right. But the but the but now if you're sitting him for a year or two years, you're losing that benefit. He's already 23. He's going to be 24, you know, next off season basically. And and so now what's he going to be? 26 years old before you find out what you have. Right. Where the Jets conversely took the young quarterback who was 20 on draft day, and they're playing it. I think the way the Browns should be playing it, which is just like we have an open competition. You know, so there is no there is no expectation over who's going to play and and it's wide open. And I think when you draft a quarterback that high and you think he could be your franchise player, there should be an open competition on the first day of training camp. And, and I do fear. I mean, the, the thing to this what's in play is Hugh Jackson's absolute desperation to win. Hugh Jackson's desperation to save his job. And I know it's not just been hard on Hugh Jackson. It's been hard on the fans to go one and 31, but I feel like with the things they have in place, this is not the time to settle for six and 10, seven and nine being competitive. I understand that right. step on the way to trying to win a Super Bowl. If it's a step on the way, that's great, but you can't accept that as a finished product in itself and I feel like with Tyrod Taylor, if you lock in on him for any extended period of time, that's what you would be doing. You would be it – would, it would take a lot. The guy's 22-20 and 20 as a starting quarterback. For Browns fans, that sounds like that's music to their ears. But that's just not going to be a guy who all of a sudden is going to make you a Super Bowl contender. Exactly. And the other thing that I think is really important to keep in mind is surplus value at the quarterback position. You cannot pay with the new rules a, a rookie quarterback who, uh, who actually plays at a franchise caliber level um, enough, uh, enough money in those first four or five years of his contract. He's like the bargain of the century. Yep. So you want to be able to leverage that as much as you can. 
So what you need to do is you need to get that player to get enough experience to the point where they have more time where they're cost controlled and that they're at a very attractive price so that you could build around them, you know, without, so, you know, even if Taylor was to have a nine and seven year and even be like a pro bowl caliber player, but not be a player that obviously is going to be able to drive the bus. He might be able to ride the bus right. to, to the playoffs and, and beyond, but he's never going to be a guy who could drive the bus. Right. So, um, but if you, but if he has that kind of a season, what's he going to cost next year in free agency? Right. I don't think he's signed next year. I don't know if they have an option or what the, but he's making about 16 million now. So that's going to probably be 22, 23 million for one year. He's probably not going to take one year. You're probably going to have to do something with them to give him, uh, you know, more money up front. So then it becomes like a total mess. So I don't see if the window on Taylor is one year, no matter what, which contractually it seems like that's a given. Why are we waiting? If, right. Uh, you know, that's what I'd be asking if I was a Browns fan. Yeah, no, and the reason they're waiting is because Hugh Jackson wants to win games at all costs. And yeah. his first priority yeah. in developing the entire franchise on a path to winning a Super Bowl is winning as many games as possible this season come hell or high water. And I guess that's understandable from an emotional standpoint. I still think they're not at the point where that's what should be prioritized. They're not going to go 0-16 again. They're going to be more right. no matter what. But you can't prioritize, prioritize Tyrod Taylor's ability to win you a few more games right now at the overall cost of progress long-term for the franchise, I think. Yeah, it's kind of like short-term growth versus long-term growth, like in business. You know what I mean? Do you want to dazzle something so you can get a good earnings report and get your stock price up for, for a quarter? Or do you want to build something that can grow uh, you know, much greater over time? Yeah. Well, and, and the thing is, Michael, and I've written this, God forbid that the biggest problem in Cleveland is too many good quarterbacks, right? That they're so stark. Yeah. The idea that like Tyrod Taylor might be good, but the problem might be he's too good. So they don't play Mayfield, who we also think is good. Like it's such a new problem. If it happens for Cleveland, people don't know what to do. It's a much better problem than no quarterbacks, which has been the issue for almost two decades but I wanted to inform people on the idea of a don't get too far out over your skis of what you expect from Tyrod Taylor. He's good, but don't expect him to be great, but also have an understanding that long-term the way things are set up, Baker Mayfield has got to be your answer at quarterback. So don't fall in love with Tyrod Taylor's competence because overall, I think that would be not what is best for the franchise. And just to put a final point on it, if you look at yards per pass play, what I did was I pulled all the Browns quarterbacks. And of the guys that played, you know, at least 10 games, where Tyrod Taylor in his career would slot would be, and these are the guys since, you know, the whole thing started basically with Tim Couch, right? Yep. You have um, you would have Brian Hoyer, number one, with uh, 106 where 100 is average. Then you would have Dilfer at 102, Kelly Holcomb, 101. Uh, Jeff Garcia, 99, Derek Anderson, 96, uh, Tim Couch, 91, and Josh McCown, 91. So between Derek Anderson and Couch and McNown, that's where Tyrod Taylor is for his career in that stat, which again, since the merger, just the winner of that stat will tell you the winner of the game 74% of the time. Michael Salfino, 
Fascinating discussion. Really interesting uh, numbers you've come up with here. Thank you so much for taking time to share this knowledge on Takes by the Lake, and hopefully we can have you on again sometime. Hey, my pleasure, man. This was fun. And that's it for this Takes by the Lake. Thank you to Michael Salfino. Thank you to Charles McDonald. Thank you to Samantha Bunton. And thanks to Dog Pound Dave. Thanks to you guys for listening. Please read me. Follow me on Twitter at Doug Lamerese, L-E-S-M-E-R-I-S-E-S. Read me at Cleveland.com. I have a Sunday column in The Plain Dealer and online uh, at Cleveland.com. It's called Third and Short. Hopefully a different look at Cleveland sports every week. And, and this Sunday's is going to be more of this. More of this digging in on irrational exuberance around the Browns. Uh, and I'm writing during the week. I write all during the week on whatever's going on. Cavs, Ohio State, some Indians, some Browns. So um, appreciate you guys listening. Would appreciate if you're reading. Um, that's how I get paid, man. So I wouldn't have a job without you guys. We're going to try to do a couple more. I've got some vacation coming up. I hope to be back next week. The week after, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'll be on break. But I'm hoping to squeeze one in next week. I have an idea that I want to do. We'll see if I can do it. Um, and then uh, and then once I'm back from vacation, we're, we're less than a month away from the start of Brown's training camp. And we are going to go hard when Brown's training camp starts. So thanks again. I'm Doug Maurice. That was Takes by the Lake. And we'll talk to you next time.